You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. This is the second in a series of talks I'm giving on the subject of seven key facts about our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And our subject today is the sinless life of Jesus. Last time we saw that the virgin birth is important because the Bible clearly teaches it, because it's entirely consistent with what the Bible teaches about Jesus, because we could never have been saved without it, and it's a wonderful illustration of how we ourselves can become children of God. Now as we turn to the sinless life of Jesus, you will see that there are certain parallels between the truths about the virgin birth and the truths about his sinless life. So we're going to look at, first of all, the fact of his sinless life, and then the importance of his sinless life. And I have only two points to make under that heading, to save us from the penalty of sin and to save us from the power of sin. So we'll begin with the fact of his sinless life. And as Bible-believing Christians, of course, all we need is the authority of the Bible to give us what we believe. So let's look at some scriptures, and I'll begin with 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin, or the NIV margin says, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Amplified Bible, incidentally, puts the word judicially in before the word sin. God made him who had no sin to be judicially sin. Uh, this isn't really our subject, uh, but it's a difficult concept to think of Jesus being sin. And so that's why these translators and commentators try to um, explain it a bit. And I think the idea is that from a judicial point of view, Jesus was becoming sin, so to speak, because all the sin of all the world was being punished as he died on the cross. Anyway, as I say, that's not the main point of this verse as far as our talk today is concerned. Uh, God made him who had no sin. Very clear statement that Jesus was sinless. And then uh, in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 24, the key verse is verse 22, but I'll read these four verses. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now when Peter says this, to this you were called, he's actually talking to slaves who were suffering unjustly because they were Christians. And Peter is saying, you were called to suffering because you are to follow the example of the Lord Jesus who suffered for us. So to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And here is the key point as far as our talk today is concerned. Verse 22, he committed no sin. 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. So no sin of action, no sin of speech. When they heard their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. We'll come back to that verse a little bit later on. And then Peter finishes, By his wounds you have been healed. And as I have said many times in various different ways, this is not referring to divine healing. It's referring to healing from the wounds of sin, if you look at the verse in its context. So, God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering for us. Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Just a couple more passages on this. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Clearly the key verse there is, he was without sin. Verse 15. And another one in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 27, 25 to 27. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So you notice a very clear contrast between the Levitical priesthood that the writer to the Hebrews is talking about, these other high priests, uh, the difference between them and Jesus. First of all, when they offered sacrifices, they had to do it every day. Jesus did it once and for all when he died upon the cross. You will also notice that they had to sacrifice for their own sins. Jesus did not have to sacrifice for his sins, for he was sinless. So it's, the writer is quite clear. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so very, very clearly uh, Jesus is seen as sinless here. Now, 
I wondered whether to include this section in my talk, and I thought perhaps I would. Um, I don't know how many listeners are familiar with the word impeccability, but it's a theological term, uh, it has other meanings as well, but um, there is a line of doctrine which says that Jesus was unable to sin. And this is based largely on the idea that, well, he was God and God can't sin. But then in my view, it ignores the fact that he was also man and man clearly can sin. Um, so, I'm saying this, and this is my opinion, and there are godly, scholarly people who hold a different view. And I've included a bit of Latin in this, as I'm sure most of my listeners are very familiar with that, <laughs> with that language. All right, uh, I joke. All right, <laughs> to say that Jesus did not sin is not to say that Jesus could not have sinned as the doctrine of impeccability teaches. It's rather to say that although he could have sinned, he did not. And the classical argument and debate goes around these three Latin words, non posse peccare, which is not the same as posse non peccare. Or to put it in English, not to be able to sin versus to be able not to sin. Jesus was able not to sin. But to say that he was not able to sin, in my view, is not an accurate reflection of what the scriptures teach. And if we go back to a verse we mentioned a moment ago, verse 15 of Hebrews 4, we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. How could he be tempted just as we are if he was unable to sin? His victory over Satan and the temptations of Satan would hardly have been a victory if he had been unable to succumb. So if Jesus was unable to sin, how could he have been tempted in every way just as we are? Well, that may be something you want to think about and uh, read a bit more about if you're not familiar with it or even Google it and see what you think. So we've talked about the fact of Jesus' sinless life. Now let's mention the importance of his sinless life. 1 Timothy 1.15 is very clear about the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, says Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, says Paul, I am the worst. Jesus came to save sinners. Now, there are two main reasons why his sinless life was of vital importance. And uh, very often, when we talk about our salvation, we talk about three tenses, past, present, and future. Uh, we talk about we have been saved, 
We are being saved and we will be saved when Jesus comes again. Uh, and sometimes preachers like to use three Ps. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. When we asked Jesus to be our saviour, we were saved from the penalty of sin. The punishment that sin deserves. But he's continually saving us from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. Now, if we go back to this uh, non posse peccare thing and relate it to us as Christians, before we were Christians, we couldn't help sinning. Now we've been saved and have been given a new nature, it is possible for us not to sin. Now, the fact is, we do. And thank God if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But actually, we're not in the position we were in before we were saved, thank God. All right. So, future tense, just lost my train of thought for a moment there. Future tense, we will be saved from the presence of sin. So we have been saved from its penalty, we are being saved from its power, we will be saved from its presence, which is quite nice. And there are various passages in Hebrews which illustrate that quite nicely. Well, I'm just running on two of those, although the third one, the presence of sin, would be relevant, I guess. Uh, firstly then, Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. But why was his sinless life of vital importance for that? Well, you see, to be able to do so, he must be able to offer a perfect sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that what John the Baptist says, John 1, 29? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, maybe to people who are unfamiliar with biblical truth or from different cultures, this might be a strange expression. The Lamb of God, what does this mean? But if you're familiar with Old Testament revelation, uh, it's very, very easy to understand. In the Old Testament, a lamb had to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And indeed, at the Passover, that key festival uh, in the Jewish religion, the key thing was that a lamb had to be slain and its blood put on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses to avert the wrath of the angel of death that passed over the land of Egypt. So... The idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God is to do with a lamb taking the punishment instead of the sinner. But the key thing about that lamb was that it had to be without defect. Just give you three Old Testament verses to illustrate this, to do with various types and many, many kinds of uh, 
offerings and sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. But the one thing that's common to them all is that whatever animal was sacrificed, it had to be without defect. Exodus 12.5 The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Leviticus 9.3 Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering. Leviticus 14 verse 10 On the eighth day he must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb, a year old, each without defect along with three-tenths of an ether of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. The key phrase in all those verses is simply without defect. You see, to bring the unrighteous to God, Jesus must himself be righteous. And so... Peter reflects on this in 1 Peter 3.18 and it picks up this idea, although he doesn't mention the Passover lamb, but the idea of a lamb without defect is clearly here. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, on behalf of the unrighteous, instead of the unrighteous, in the place of the unrighteous to bring you to God. He's the righteous one to bring the unrighteous to God. So it's by his righteousness and obedience that we are made righteous. We couldn't have been made righteous if Jesus hadn't been righteous in every sense of the word. Romans 5, 18 and 19 Consequently, just as the result of one trespass or sin was condemnation for all men, here Paul is talking about Adam's sin. So one trespass was condemnation for all people. So also the result of one act of righteousness, Jesus dying for our sins on the cross, was justification that brings life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And we see in Paul's writings, it comes out again in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, uh, the whole idea that Jesus is the last Adam which actually takes me back to the idea of impeccability and so on. Um, Jesus succeeds where Adam fails. Before we were Christians, we were in Adam. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. When you became a Christian, you came out of Adam. Adam ceased to be the representative head of you, your part of the human race, if you like. And you came into Christ. You came under a new headship. You are no longer in Adam. You are in 
Christ. And Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Was Adam able to sin? He was sinless before he disobeyed the commandment. Was he able to sin? Yes, indeed he did. The parallel with Jesus then must surely be Jesus was able to sin, but he didn't. Thank God he didn't. There would have been no hope for us if he had given in to the temptations of the enemy. Hmm. So, just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So it's through Jesus' obedience that we are made righteous, that we are justified. See, it's not just his death that saves us. He saved us by living a sinless life. If he hadn't lived a sinless life, his death would have been in vain. Why? Because he'd have been dying for his own sin. Hmm. So, if Jesus had not lived a sinless life, he could not have saved us from our sin. Which brings me now to the second point, which is a little briefer, though one could give a much, much longer talk on it, I'm sure. To save us from the power of sin. Because Jesus never yielded to temptation and was always victorious over sin, he's able to help us when we are tempted. Let's go back to that passage in 1 Peter 2. I was talking to you about the slaves and so on. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. But... Let's just highlight, so that we might live for righteousness. Why did Jesus die? So that we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But remember that just two verses earlier, Peter has said Jesus committed no sin and no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. So in that context, 1 Peter 2.24 is interesting. It's not just Jesus' death, but the fact that he was innocent, the fact that he committed no sin at all, enables us not only to have eternal life, but to live for righteousness. We can die to sin. And indeed, if you're familiar with Romans 6, and of course that's Paul, not Peter, the same line of thought is there, that in Christ we died to sin and we came alive for righteousness. Mm. And then Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. It's interesting, isn't it? In every way, like us. 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be like us to make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hmm. So it wasn't easy for Jesus to be tempted. And there are at least two ways of understanding this verse because the Greek word for temptation is the same word that is often translated testing or trial. And so there's a sense in which when we are being tested and this doesn't have to be with regard to sin. I'm just digressing a moment here, but to drop that thought in your mind. We are tested in all kinds of ways as Christians. And just as Jesus was tested, he suffered when he was tested. Okay? So he's able to help us when we are being tested. In other words, he knows our frailty, he knows our weakness. It's a truth we are familiar with. Whether that's intended in this verse, I couldn't be sure, but certainly it's a truth that is found elsewhere in the scripture. But come back to the thought of sin. Jesus knows what it's like when you are tempted, when you are finding it difficult to overcome. Jesus was tested in all points like we are and he is able to help us. So, and this is where we perhaps could have spent a lot more time uh, in seeking to answer the question, how does he help us? Um, My main purpose this evening was to show you that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus lived a sinner's life and why that was absolutely important. But I could hardly finish a talk like this without at least saying something about how does he help us. And I just want to suggest to you, firstly, by his example during his temptation in the wilderness. And you're familiar with the story in uh, Matthew 4 and again in Luke 4. And uh, I think the big example that we are shown there by Jesus is his use of scripture in combating the temptations of the devil Mm -hmm. and three times the devil comes at him but each one Jesus says it is written Mm -hmm. it is written it is written he had so got it into that if I can put it this way his DNA he had so absorbed the truth of scripture Of he, he was the word made flesh. But uh, as a human being, he, he was so full of the scripture that he knew the answer. And isn't it just like that with us, really? There are some things we would not dream of doing that, that they're not such a temptation to us because we, say, we, we just know it's wrong. And there are some people who say, oh, well, I don't know, maybe, because they want to do something, they try and find an excuse to do it and so on. But, you know, if you really know what the word says, you, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. 
It's not according to the scriptures. So follow the example of Jesus in knowing the scripture and using it correctly because the devil knows how to use it incorrectly, as is clear in that passage. Uh, And then he helps us by providing a way out. And a key verse I memorised for Billy Graham counselling back in the 1950s, and that really dates me, I was only a teenager. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, I memorised the authorised version in those days, but here's the NIV. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You can endure it. How is he going to provide a way out? That's a difficult question. And he does it in different ways at different times with different people, I guess. The fact is, the promise is there. There is always a way out. And very often the way out is to flee. (laughs) Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. And, well, I can remember one or two situations where I've literally had to run away. Um, well, I'll just say, and I, you know, a prostitute got into my car quite near Piccadilly many years ago. I'll leave it there except to say I left her there, not in the car, on the pavement, and I drove home as fast as I possibly could. There are some situations where you just need to run away from it. Yeah, I haven't shared that with too many people, but um, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That he does provide a way out. Yeah. And what we'll be dealing with in a later talk, and I just finish with this thought, we're going to be talking about his heavenly ministry. We've done his virgin birth. We've been talking about his sinless life. We're going to talk next time about his atoning death. And then his bodily resurrection, his triumphant ascension, but then his abiding intercession at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And that's the other way he is helping us to overcome temptation. We'll talk more about that when we get to it in that talk. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit Brixham.Church.